I felt so disoriented. Like, how do I manage this? So I had to do the share and moonstruck moment of slapping myself across the face and saying, get a grip. Hey, I'm Kelly Corrigan. And this week on Kelly Corrigan Wonders, I'm thinking about, well, maybe panicking about the empty nest. As part of our series with Medium, Love Stories for a Weary World, I reached out to a writer I've long admired, Susan Orlean, who knows a thing or two about the way love changes over time. She and I dig into the fear that bubbles within us that even though we are both perfectly occupied with work we find meaningful and satisfying, we do worry that in the empty nest there might just be less Join me for a conversation with medium writer Susan Orlean. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody. If you love listening to true stories from people all around the world, then we have the perfect recommendation for you, the Moth Podcast. Each episode features people from moth events around the globe, sharing diverse and honest stories of love, resilience, change, heartbreak, chance encounters, unbelievable calamities, and everything in between. Episodes drop weekly. Find The Moth Podcast on Spotify, Apple, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews, or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. So my guest today is Susan Arleen, who's been writing at The New Yorker since the early 90s and has such a funny list of interests like umbrella inventors and origami artists and Tanya Harding and treadmill desks and taxidermy. So hi, how are you? I'm great. I'm so happy to be talking to you. I know we had such fun recently on another Zoom. So Susan George, who's the producer of this podcast, insisted that what she believes the world needs right now is love stories. And so we went looking on Medium, where both you and I post weekly, for really interesting takes on love. And you had one that spoke straight to me about empty nesting. So I thought maybe what we would do is you would start with a short reading, then we could talk about it, then I have a short reading to share with you, and we can talk a little bit more. That sounds great. So this was a piece called An Empty Nest Sooner Than Expected. My son, completely at wit's end with Zoom education, left for boarding school last month. So my husband and I became, a few years ahead of schedule, empty nesters. I had not yet given this phase of my life much thought. My son is in 10th grade, so I had assumed I had three more years of hands-on parenting. 
My thoughts about empty nesting were formed primarily by a television commercial that ran some years back in which parents are sending their kid off to college accompanied by the weeping of huge crocodile tears and the wringing of hands. But the minute the kid leaves, they race into his room, pitch out all his furniture, rip down his heavy metal posters, and turn the room into some kind of fancy, expensive spa home theater. (laughs) I never pictured myself celebrating at all. In fact, I looked at the prospect of his departure with real dread. But I also figured there might be changes we'd appreciate. For instance, our trash would no longer bulge with uncountable numbers of pizza boxes. Our travel plans could be made without regard to a school calendar. There would be less stinky laundry to do. More than that, though, I thought my husband and I would start living an adult-centric life. We would watch higher-brow movies that my son had vetoed. We would eat more sophisticated food and definitely more fish, which my son eschews. The house would be tidier. We would spend time in a more adult way. I'm not sure what I even meant by that, but I just assumed that instead of spending weekends at paintball stadiums and sneaker shops, we would, say, read or look at art. Okay, do I tell you now about having peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for dinner? about the clothes piled up in little mountains around the house, the crap television we've been watching for hours, the unmade bed, the laundry hamper erupting like Mount Vesuvius. Rather than convert our home into an intellectual worldly haven untethered to teenage ambience, we have gone the other direction. We've made it into the home my teenager probably dreamed it would be. I'm still showering, but my personal presentation has definitely gone down a few notches. (laughs) We eat lunch, or should I say, quote, lunch, by standing in front of the refrigerator and picking at whatever is within reach. Dinner is, quote, served in front of the television, exactly what my parental self explicitly forbade. We haven't become adults. We've reverted to being teenagers. I can't help wondering as I finish eating a cheese stick for lunch, (laughs) I bought the cheese sticks to use for training my new puppy, but well, whatever. (laughs) Just how much of parenting is performative? Some of it is for real, of course. Even though my son is away, I don't do things like littering or shoplifting or fail to clean up after my dog, things that I feel are actual moral civic duties. But there are many things that I remember arguing with my parents about, like why you needed to make your bed every morning if you were just going to mess it up at night anyway, mm-hmm. that I suddenly feel too lazy to do now, now that I don't have an audience of a younger person to perform them for. I fully expect a mid-course correction. We will soon tire of peanut butter. We will tidy up. We will open our mail. We will shower and do our laundry and slowly deploy hangers for our clothing. We have no choice. My son will be home soon for spring break. Uh, How old is your son now? He's 16. He started in January. So this was very much in the rawest early moments of being an empty nester. Yeah. When I when I wrote the piece. And how have your habits changed? 
I will say that <laughs> the initial slovenly way in which we were living our life has corrected a little bit as I expected. We really just went to town doing all the things that I absolutely deplored when my son was home, like not making your bed. To me, that was the measure because it's one of those things that you know there's no real reason to make your bed except to make your house look tidy. It's not functional in any way. So as soon as my son left for school and I was very adamant about making the bed when he was home, we suddenly literally fell off the wagon and the bed was a complete disaster. After a little bit of time of living like this, I thought, you know what? I don't actually enjoy this. The experience of living like a teenager has lost its charm for me. (laughs) Do you think that the adage that children make their parents better people is true? A hundred percent. And that's what I was sort of exploring with the piece, that there's a certain amount of behavior that you want to model for your kids. And it it keeps you honest on those. You know, do I look both ways before I cross the street when I'm on my my own? Absolutely not. But, you know, there was not a street that I crossed when my son was young where I didn't stop and look both ways and make a very dramatic presentation of what it's like to look both ways before you cross the street. And that's a very minor example. I think that you are modeling the behavior that you want your kids to adopt. And then in this case, it was a big shock to me when when he left home and making the bed was was such an example of that or eating out of the refrigerator or watching TV during dinner, which is something that I was adamant about, like, I'm never, that's a horrible thing. I would never Mm. have dinner in front of the TV. That's a terrible thing to do. And that's family time to talk and, you know, proof. It's been proven many, many times that kids who have family dinners are healthier, moral, more moral people. That's one of the most haunting areas of research for me because I'm not a cook. I don't like going to the grocery store. I do feel like I totally let my family down in terms of regular family dinner. I was sort of relieved when sports got in the way of dinner because then it wasn't my fault that we weren't having oh. family dinner because the the research is clear. It's unassailable and it totally resonates for me. And I admire yeah. people. I admire other moms who live like that and structure their home like that. It's just not me. And it was torture. But the other thing that was torture in terms of this modeling question that you're bringing up, and then when do you relax it? So I have two daughters, and I was so careful not to be saying nasty things about other people because I didn't want to model that. I didn't want to model, like, judgy, catty conversation. It's misery-making. Right. But somehow it didn't, like, seep into me. Like, all those years of not doing it didn't change my evil ways. You know, like when they're not around, I'll be quicker to say something like, well, you know her. I mean, she's just so over the top. Well, you know what I think of as a, a, as a great example of this is swearing. Yes. When my son was young, I thought, 
I, I mean, when I grew up, my parents never swore in front of us ever, ever, ever. And to be honest, I don't think they ever swore anywhere. When I first left home, I started swearing a blue streak. And I think it was, you know, all of these years of feeling like I didn't dare swear at all. I won't say I was foul mouthed. I was very quick to swear. And I am foul mouthed. I'm just going to come uh, out clean and say that oh, to are anyone you? who knows oh, me. Maybe I am. Maybe I'm, I am I'm foul mouthed. Myself. My husband would swear in front of my son when he was little. And I would say, don't do that. He's, he's going to hear. Well, of course. My son became very fluent in swearing (laughs) and it was really hard to correct him because we were swearing all the time. Sometimes I I think that part of the love affair that is having children is manifest in the devotion. And the devotion is I can change my behavior as a role model for these people. Like that's how devoted I am. I will be different. I will be a better version of myself such that they might enter their lives as adults in better shape than they would have if they had just been exposed to the real me. Like the, there's a there's a thing that's happening for me now with my kids who are 18 and 19, which is I'm not leading anymore with this semi-cleaned up version of myself, but rather I feel the call of love right now is to expose them to my many flaws and to normalize flaws so that they feel more comfortable in the world and that I'm not setting them up to be less than because I'm not projecting this false version of myself. Like That is so important. And for me, it was very difficult because re- I, I didn't have that kind of relationship with my parents. I didn't know them as their authentic selves. And I think that was a different model of parenting. My parents were of such a radically different generation. And there was a sort of public self and a private self Mm -hmm. that were managed very differently. And I think that you didn't show your children your private self. You didn't even necessarily show your spouse your private self. That's absolutely true. Like the idea of like getting dressed just in time for your husband to come home and putting on a little makeup and changing yourself to be the right wife for the 530 man is just so different now. I mean, sometimes I look at myself at the end of the day and I think like, I can't believe he still loves me. Like there's no part of me that's tossing on a little lipstick at the end of the day, maybe a spritz of perfume. And appearing in your transparent negligee with a martini at the door. <laughs> never not once, Susan. Yeah, there's always tomorrow. You but know, that's a different kind of up. love to the point of love stories. Like knowing love, love that's based on the true personality and behaviors of another person, to me is deeper and richer and more comforting. I agree entirely. Well, also, there the exhaustion of maintaining a facade that you're constantly curating for the purpose of presentation in a way becomes oddly narcissistic. And, and also, I, I, I think that the bedrock of real love has to be based on that private self, that 
that true self of who you really are. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that you don't work hard to make yourself a good partner. And I think what is frightening is when you work hard to present yourself to the outside world and don't do that for your partner, which is a whole other version. And that was something that I saw a lot in my parents' generation. There was so much self-consciousness about social status, and yet privately people didn't work that hard to, to really be close. Right. I mean, it's definitely easier to take a shower and put on a nice dress and curl your hair than it is to love someone day in and day out as they are. I I agree. I mean, to be really honest and really close to someone, it demands a lot of you emotionally and it can it can be really vulnerable. Yeah, it can be terrifying. Let's take a short break here and we'll be right back with medium writer Susan Orlean. When you're hiring for your small business, you want quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than, wait for it, a billion professionals, which makes it the best place on earth to hire the right people. It gives you access to applicants you can't find anywhere else. LinkedIn does all that while making the process easy and totally intuitive. Hiring is easy when you have this many qualified candidates right at your fingertips. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. LinkedIn Jobs just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash kelly. That's linkedin.com slash kelly to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, welcome back to Kelly Corrigan Wonders. I'm talking to medium writer Susan Orlean today about the love that is felt so acutely as the nest is emptying. Can I ask you, so I'm about to be an empty nester. And I was wondering, how is your relationship? What have you learned? What are the tips that you want to give me for next year? Like, of a couple different things. One is that there's a certain energy, like this kid that's leaving, this last kid, brings a lot of conversational energy. She's a font of information. She listens to podcasts and reads books. And so when she comes down for dinner, she inserts whole new topics that we would not bring to the table ourselves. So there's that. The idea of the two of us just like eyeball to eyeball for 40 years, like we already repeat ourselves. Like what what, what are we going to tell each other? You know, like I, I always say, we both need to be reading different things because there's nothing you can tell me today that I don't already know because I read the exact same newspaper you read. And then the other thing I'm afraid about is that the part of my life that I could most easily imagine And the thing I was looking forward to the most was being a mother, like having a family in my house. That noise, Mm -hmm. that chaos, that motion, that energy. So do you have any thoughts for me? My experience with it was very 
strange because I had no anticipation of it. My son did Zoom school um, for the first couple of months of the pandemic. And so he was home more than normal. For the first time since he was a toddler, I was serving him breakfast, lunch, and dinner and seeing him all day long and knowing what his every minute was like. Knowing more. You know, you pass through the kitchen and you'd overhear someone's biology professor. And I'd think, oh, under normal circumstances, I would never have access to what your professor sounded like. Oh, I mean, with teenagers, normally you you see them very little. It went from 10 yeah. minutes a day to 10 hours a day. Yeah. And so for it, it was exhilarating to have him home so much at a moment when I would have expected to see him very little. So he really hated Zoom school. And he did a tour of this boarding school with the idea of going next year. And then they had a few slots available for students to begin mid-year. He scrambled and in the course of about three weeks, got his application together and they accepted him and he left three weeks later. Uh It was just boom, instant. So on one hand, I had very little time to to dread it and get myself upset and and um, do what I'm doing, anxious yeah. and, and pre live you know, it, as my cousin Kathy would say. I mean, I've been pre living yeah. this thing for a long time. So this happened abruptly, <laughs> and I felt like it was the right thing for him. So I had to kind of take a deep breath. And when he first left. It it really surprised me because I used to think, look, I'm a person whose career has been very big in my life. And so maybe it won't feel all that different because I'm super busy with work. The first few days, I thought my life has no meaning. And I thought, I can't believe I, of all people, am saying that. Right, because you're when, so fulfilled in your work. I mean, you've written like a whole lot of books and had a whole lot of success. And you could fill up every minute of every day between writing and speaking. And still, Ellie, your your honest reaction was, my life has no meaning. Literally, that sentence manifests itself in my head. And I felt I felt so unmoored. Did your husband feel similarly? No, he he certainly missed my son a lot, but he managed it in a much more rational way, which mm-hmm. is, oh, this is a fantastic opportunity, and felt so disoriented. And I didn't want to be calling him every day and hovering, and I, I felt like, what do, how do I manage this? So I had to kind of do the share and moonstruck moment of slapping myself across the face and saying, <laughs> get a grip. And then it was interesting because he still needed me so much. He didn't need me to cook his lunch, to do his laundry, but he needed me in a very different way of making him feel 
that we were present, that his homesickness was something that he could manage. So it simply changed. And in certain ways, I felt more needed because when he was at home, he could take for granted the fact that we were there for him. Suddenly, it it was something that he needed and wanted to have demonstrated regularly. What's the relationship between love and need? Like, why does being needed feel like being loved? And is that a good thing or a bad thing or just a thing? I think that's such a good question because I think this is probably really typical of women of our era to kind of be put off by the idea of love having need. And yet, I think when you really love someone, their presence in in your life becomes integral and their absence, you need that part of your life. I, I think it's a component of how deeply integrated someone is in your life that to continue feeling whole their presence is needed. Needy and need are not synonymous. Right. Right. My kids tease me a lot that I'm needy. (laughs) Clara once said to me, mom, there's a difference between a hug and a hang. Oh, that is so funny. (laughs) And I was like, oh God, stop it. I think it's interesting that you need to both be very intact as an individual and still have room to need someone else to make yourself feel complete. And it does feel necessary to experience both of those things at once. And Mm -hmm. they are contradictory. But they coexist all the time in people. And I think that uh, a person who doesn't feel relatively intact as an individual is going to have a hard time in a relationship, but somebody who doesn't make room in their soul for another person is going to have a hard time being intimate. So somehow you need to be able to do both. How different is marriage after the there's been no kid and then a kid and then no kid? Uh, it's really interesting. My husband and I both had been married before. I think you just come into a marriage differently when you're older and when you've been married before. And I I think a lot of second marriages are really happy Mm. because of the lessons you learn in the first one. I think part of the nature of our relationship is we spend a huge amount of time together, much more than a typical couple, I think. And I'm not talking about the pandemic. It's been a really long time that we've both been working at home I like it. I like being under the same roof with Edward. I mean, this is only pandemic scenario for us, but you guys have been under the same roof together for 10 years or 15 years. Yeah. And I'm so used to it. We are easily each other's best friend and most frequent companion. We do so much together. Incredible. So for us to have my son gone... I I think it's different with an only child too because the three of us were a unit. So his absence was startling in that way, but we went back to 
our usual kind of companionability very quickly. Okay, so I, I was so worried about my kids growing up and leaving that I, even when they were, oh my God, so young, five and seven, I wrote this book called Lift, which is a letter to them about what it had been to be their mother so far because I knew that they would change and that their changing would make me change. So here's my contribution to this conversation about love and empty nesting. This morning, Georgia, you slipped into bed with me before six. After some adjusting and resettling, you said, you know what I've noticed? A lot of times, elbows are bent. That's why the skin is so wrinkly on the tips, you said, finding my elbow under the sheets as Claire appeared in the doorway looking like a cross between Sandy Duncan and Jeff Spicoli. I know some people who never bend their elbows, she said. Who, you demanded. The people in the straightest arm club, Claire said in her sing-song voice. There's no such thing. Yes, there is. Where, you said. In Arkansas, Claire said. I looked at the direction of the clock without my glasses. Oh, boy, girls, does that say seven? After breakfast, I sent you both upstairs to brush your teeth, something that never seems to take long enough, while I cleaned up the kitchen, the last few bloated Cheerios, a nearly finished lanyard you started at Camp Takwa, a cootie catcher we made that predicted the future. You will be on American Idol. You will swim in the Olympics. You will live in Bora Bora. A third grade spelling list that started with enough and ended with ground. A homemade book that said, once upon a time, blank page, blank page, blank page, the end. I put that in a drawer. Maybe I'll throw it out later, maybe not. I never know which souvenirs to keep. We walked to the bus stop. You guys wanted me to let you wait alone. You told me to stop babying you, so I stood 143 steps away. I could still see you, but God, you were small in that corner. If I had have taken a picture, you'd have been just two shapes. The bus pulled up. The doors opened. Kids called out your names. You were fine, better than fine. I was there. I saw it. That's amazing. I'm so glad I'm a writer because I would have never remembered this nothing argument between six-year-old Georgia and four-year-old Claire about why people bend their elbows and why the skin's (laughs) wrinkly. But that is the meat of the experience. And the loss of those sort of ridiculous but classic moments is what I'm sort of mourning What I think is going to replace it, which I'm starting to see already with my oldest, who's a junior now in college, is that we can talk about, I don't know, like the Fed raising the interest rates or why we went into Afghanistan after 9-11. Like the, the quality of conversations that we can have now is different. And so I'm somehow working hard to release what is gone, and embrace what is here. You know, it reminds me very much of when my son was really little and he would reach some milestone. I would always be delighted, but very sad. Like when he first started walking. And of course, it's something to celebrate. It's exciting. It's cool. But I I had this kind of heartbreak of thinking, well, he can walk now. He won't need me to, 
carry them all the time. And I, I would feel very, very blue. And friends would always say, look, it just gets better and better. And it would take me a while to get through that sense of loss and then begin thinking, oh, this is so great. He's walking and we can walk places together. Having someone leave your home, you lose that texture of their daily presence and the tiny moments that you're sharing constantly. But I hope it's like when they start walking, that it takes a while and then you realize, oh, it's even better. Yeah. I had this funny experience years ago where I happened to be on the East Coast for a summer and I couldn't get back to California for 4th of July. And my friends had a place on Lake Winnipesaukee and they have some of my high school buddies and their whole families up there for 4th of July weekend. And they said, oh, just come, come by yourself. It'll still be fun. And so I went and it was a complete blast. I had the best time. And then the next year they said, oh, you got to come, but plan ahead and bring everybody. And so we all went and it wasn't as much fun because I was carrying the other three people. Emotionally, I was so divided between what I want to do. Like I want to just go sit on the dock and drink coffee and shoot the breeze with Jeff and Michelle. But I got to make sure that Georgia finds something she can eat and she's a vegetarian, but they don't know that. And then Claire's not awake yet, but I'm wondering if she's in her bed watching TV and she should come out because it's a beautiful day and we're on this lake and we flew all this way. And now Edward's over there talking to somebody about politics and he's a Republican and he's a Democrat. And like the amount of energy within me that is tracking the other three people, I had never noticed as poignantly before. But to compare summer number one on Lake Winnipesaukee and summer number two, I was like, maybe there's a part of empty nesting that is going to be fabulous because I just can't worry about someone that I can't see. The day after Austin left, I said to a friend, "I, I can't believe I'm sending my son off to boarding school. And she said, oh, my daughter went to boarding school. And I said, well, how'd you do? And she said, oh, it was fantastic. We celebrated. And so I love my daughter, but it was absolutely great. And it was so nice to not worry about <laughs> taking care of her needs. And teenagers start being a little more take than give in certain ways. <laughs> it's a lot of different sorts of maintenance as opposed to taking care of a baby who is very compliant and um, and whose emotions are so simple. I mean, a baby's crying because the diaper's wet or they're hungry. Right. An 18-year-old is crying for different reasons that you may or may not ever get access to. Like the, well, the, the absorbing yeah. of their moods without any potential to ameliorate their moods, that is like a crazy trap of loving a teenager, is that you yeah. can feel that they are upset, but they are not going to tell you and you are not going to have the opportunity to help them work through it. First time my son said, I don't want to talk about it, Ugh. I thought, what? You have to. And I said, no, you have to. And he said, no, I don't. Mm. And I realized, wow, I've entered a, a different phase with him. I, I can't say to him, I ins- you are required I to know. tell me what's bothering you. And those moods can be very intense. But you're, they have the capacity to shut you out so that all you're getting is the mood and you're not getting any of the mothering part of it where you might say, oh, well, let's talk about it. Let's 
figure out how we can make it better. Like, and that's that's very difficult. I found very that appropriate. Really, like, it, like right. of, of course, of course, you don't want your eighteen year old relying on you to solve a friendship snafu. Like that's that's their work. That's they're on their epic journey. Like get out of the way. Yeah. So maybe that's why they have to go because they can't reveal like half of their life to you just in passing without giving you any agency. Yeah. Well, I think for most kids, most of the time, the degree to which they separate from their parents is happening when it should happen. And my parents were very engaged with us. And my mom was just a 100% full on mom. That was her identification of who she was and what she was and what she did. And I am the youngest of three. And when I was leaving for college, I thought, oh my God, this is just going to kill my mom because really being a mother was the focus of her life. And I was shocked when she said to me that I w- was always welcome after college to stay at home if I needed to, but she didn't want me to ever move back in. It was almost like saying the appropriate thing now is for you to go to college and then after college for you to begin making your own way. And if you need to shortstop here, that's great. but. Please don't move back in. Oh my God, my mom's the same way. My brother lived at home for a minute and my mom started charging him for electricity because oh, he was God. he was so bad about leaving the lights on. That's so funny. The dynamic is awkward. I mean, as much as you love your kids, there seems to be something coded into our being that says you shouldn't be in the nest anymore. You should be building your own nest so that we can enjoy each other in a new relationship. It's interesting, becoming an empty nester, it's not at all that I want them to come home. I do not want us to live together again. I I agree entirely that the, the most positive outcome is that everybody moves into their own life and their own homes and they create their own families. What I'm sad about is thinking that this time is over. Exactly. Um, Feeling the passing of an era in your own life, to me, is always really melancholy. Yeah. Even if what follows is fantastic and it's the natural course of life, I still feel a deep melancholy seeing the end of an era and knowing it will never return. We'll never be back here again. Yeah. Thank you so much for doing this with me. I love your writing. I'm always proud to be on Medium with you. Well, thank you. This was a real joy. It's such a pleasure to talk to you. I thought I'd end the episode with Susan Orlean thinking about how the idea of saying goodbye to your children after 18 years mixes and mingles with every other emotion and every other activity for some period of time before you adjust. This is a short thing I wrote at the end of Claire's senior year. I hosted the end of year lacrosse party on my back deck last week. 15 girls in masks, pizza and Caesar salad, blondie bars and spindrifts. 
After we ate, each player took the floor to share three things they admired about a teammate. They were jittery, sincere, and full of gratitude. There was clapping and hooting. It was heaven. But then when my turn came to sum up the season, mortifying. Oh my God, I'm crying. I made fun of myself in their terms. Uh, awkward. And the team laughed, but eyes were wide above masks. My big emotions over a middling JV lacrosse season must have been hard to interpret. Sorry, guys. It wasn't about lacrosse, and I don't really care about winning. It was about, I don't know, a lot, actually. Coaching has always been sort of profound for me. Watching growth from close-up, witnessing incremental change in return for listening, having faith, trying a new way, for adjusting and overriding bad habits for humility and guts. Or seeing teenagers be nice to each other, showing the new kid how to dodge, commenting on a heroic ground ball, claiming my bad when it wasn't. Repeatedly observing automatic generosity pass from an experienced player to a first-timer will reassure anyone that things are going to be okay. And then this year, of all years, being outside five nights a week from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. in motion under the lights felt like the only possible corrective after 12 months hunched over a laptop reading about restrictions and deferrals, closures and cancellations. Leaving my house with a thermos of hot tea to cheer these girls by name as they galloped across the field like racehorses seeing their breath rise into the air in clouds of effort above their heads, hearing them shout each other out, okay, Orla, I see you, Ruby, go ahead, Janie. I call that victory. Action over stagnation, camaraderie over isolation. That's not the whole of it, though. How could I ever tell these girls, young enough to have never given a moment's thought to mortality, that when I put on my dad's Radnor lacrosse jacket, I am recapturing something? sublime. And in that giant coat, I am his kid again. That I saw what being a part of a team did for my dad's health, and I want that for me too. How can I tell them? He's the real Coach Corrigan. And then how can I explain that come August 20th, both my kids will be a long plane ride away, that I am bracing myself for the transition from 80 to 90 hours of FaceTime a week to 10 to 20 minutes of quote-unquote, FaceTime a week. And coaching helps me imagine how I might make happy days for myself once the quiet, tidy years begin. I tried my best to make sense of my emotions to the team. It was mostly useless. Eventually, we turned our attention to the slideshow. Look at that shot. Oh my God, my butt, that game sucked. And I took in the last of their cultish enthusiasm. Until next year. Here are my takeaways from my conversation with Susan Orlean. Number one, parenting is necessarily part performance, which means once they leave, you can drop the act and leave the dishes in the sink. Number two, never forget the anticipation of an event is often worse than the event itself. Number three, our job as parents is not done when our kids leave the nest. There's lots more to do just of a slightly different nature and often from a distance. Number four, being sad about the end of one thing doesn't mean you're blind to what might be truly excellent about the next. 
Number five, needing and being needed might be less some shameful pathology and more a clear sign of how integral someone has become to your being. Number six, epic journeys aren't just for kids. There's more to all of us, more to explore and learn and enjoy, hopefully until the day we die. Next time on Kelly Corrigan Wonders. If you can be yourself sooner and later, like like that's really the key to everything, I think, and you're going to attract the right people and you're going to repel the people you shouldn't have in your life. Kelly and medium writer Michael Thompson share the stories of meeting their spouses for the first time as we continue the series Love Stories for a Weary World. I want to thank Susan Orlean and my production partner on this series, Medium. You can find my writing and Susan's there every week. I want to thank the Kelly Corgan Wonders team. That's Dean Kateri, Susan George, our summer intern, Margaret Faust. And I want to thank you guys for joining us on Kelly Corrigan Wonders. Hey, I have a quick favor to ask. We are conducting a survey to get to know you, our audience, better. It won't take long and it's easy to find. Visit survey.prx.org slash Kelly. That's survey.prx.org slash Kelly. Thank you.